Today, we're going to be talking about a little discussed subject, that of third-party risk. So we're going to have to be asking ourselves, what is that? Well, let's delve into that with our guest. Hi, my name is Ishan Gerdhar. I'm the founder and CEO of Priva. Priva is a a technology company that provides solutions around third-party risk management. Uh, We we focus this area in a couple different ways. Uh, One is helping clients respond to security assessment questionnaires that they're receiving from their clients, um, but then also downstream helping them evaluate third-party risks of their vendors and their supply chain. Tonight, the North Korean hackers going even further. This was just the latest in a series of leaks. 143 million Americans, one of the largest cyber attacks in this country's history. Estimated losses from these breaches in excess of $20 billion. Hello and welcome back to Decrypted, the cybersecurity podcast for the everyday person. I'm your friendly neighborhood cyberman, Jacob Besida, and I'm joined by my cyber partner in crime, Dayton Williams. It's great to be here, Jacob. It's good to be here, at least digitally. Unfortunately, like many, we are still continuing to quarantine and have to move on to using platforms like Skype, not only to have our calls, but to continue our uh, interviews. This week, we actually will be having one of our first all remote interviews where no one is in the same room. And we're truly living in the future. It's a brave new world for sure. That's certainly for sure. Uh, I think the fun part of that is having to deal with Skype. You'd think that after so many years of being basically one of the first video, if not the first you know, video conferencing apps, that it would be pretty good. I have not had so many right. problems. Yeah, truly, truly, the they're, they're known as like, they're like the Kleenex of, of video apps, right? Like, so mm-hmm. well known, it's become eponymous to Skype somebody. Um, mm-hmm. But honestly, just haven't had a lot of experience with Skype since like high school, just Facebook has it. There's like, you know, phone apps have it. Just haven't mm-hmm. had to use Skype in a long time. It's true. I So much so, I think both you and I actually had to make uh, new accounts because, uh, you know, as you astutely pointed out, we very professionally made our Skype usernames in uh, high school and middle school. My particular oh. name of McMuffin, but with three Fs, uh, <laughs> was... Probably not going to be the best for these professional interviews. I don't know about you, Dayton. Well, Did you have to change Mc, your name? McMuffin has joined the call. Uh, no, no. I mean, mine was um, mine was just my first name and last name. Uh, but it had I had to have three after it because apparently there were two other Dayton Williamses on Skype, which just speaks to the pervasiveness of the platform. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway. <laughs> but, but why are we dwelling so long on Skype? Well, it's... Uh, unfortunately a dependency of our our normal work so you could say that there's a sort of third party being introduced into how we record decrypted and is it something that's secure and we've already kind of talked about some security issues with zoom for instance but what about other apps that you're using that are you know involved in your process not necessarily the security app themselves but maybe what that security app depends upon right we're going to be talking about that with risk so Dayton, you know a lot about risk you work with risk tell me a little bit more about it what is risk management honestly so Risk management in a very base form is understanding all of the challenges, all of the stumbling blocks, obstacles, all of the um, risks that go into decisions that you make as an organization. So in this specific context, um, risk has been around for a very, very long time. 
you know, every decision that businesses have made for a very long time have had to do with risk and managing risk. Um, even the Academy Awards have a huge apparatus for risk for specific processes, right? So, Jacob, I'm not sure if you knew this, but before, um, you know, Oscar finalists, the people who present the Oscars are brought onto the stage, they have rehearsals where they make sure they they know who won. They have uh, specialized envelopes that that, you know, are easy to open. The text on the pages uh, on the, the envelopes um, are easily readable, so they don't mix up the envelopes. So there's not a fiasco where uh, the wrong winner is is announced on live television for millions of people at home. And that's just an example of like what risk management could look like for an organization like the Academy Awards, for instance. It's all about understanding all of the bits and pieces that go into a process and knowing where there's danger, where there are challenges, and how they can be addressed. Mm-hmm. And uh, much like the Oscars, it's just as secure. There's never been a breach ever with risk management strategies. Flawless is what, is what I'm hearing, correct? Uh, there have definitely been mix-ups at the Oscars. Uh, some of them incredibly embarrassing. And I think embarrassing, embarrassment, um, losing face is an important thing that needs to be taken into account when an organization looks at risk. How is this going to affect my reputation? How is this going to affect my users? How is this going to affect my security? Um, so risk management is understanding the implications behind all of your decisions. Another example is the implication behind our decision to use Skype, which um, we've had some issues with in the past, to put it lightly. Um, and the decision to choose between Zoom or to choose between Skype or to choose between Facebook chat um, there are a lot of options and all of those options have risks associated with them. Mm-hmm. And I do want to point out, neither of us is paid by Skype uh, and we, we, we would never accept uh, big Skype money. Oh no. You know, we're no. too, we would never sell out to big Skype here. <laughs> <laughs> so a big factor of what we're going to be talking about with risk management is going to involve something called controls, you know, and to have that conversation, we're really going to need to understand what that is. And Dayton, could you tell me a little bit more about what security controls are? Sure. So security controls is kind of a catch-all term that describe um, any safety nets, any countermeasures, anything that an organization uses to minimize risks to, in this case, an IT system, right? Mm -hmm. So a great example of a security control is the length of a password, right? Mm -hmm. So that needs to be a decision by an organization that has an IT system to say, okay, when we have a new user create a new account and they set their password, their password has to be X characters long. It needs to have multiple cases. It needs to have um, symbols and, you know, alphanumeric, like it needs to have numbers in it as well. Like that is a security control that an organization is implementing into their IT system to make sure that, you know, uh, users don't put in password, the word password as their password, or just putting in their first and last name for their password. It's a way to crack down and prevent issues before they even happen. It sounds like the definition you gave is kind of vague. It sounds like it could encompass quite a lot of things. It could encompass things like physical security even. It can enca- it can encapsulate everything. Everything that could possibly be a security risk is it is encapsulated in some way by a security control. Um, and you're probably asking yourself, where do the security controls come from? Well, um, I am asking myself that exact question. Exactly. Right now. It's a great question to ask. Um, in the private space, different industries come up with their own security controls, right? So hospitals, Mm -hmm. when they're protecting um, data for the patients, they have specific security controls that they they try to maintain to Mm -hmm. uh, protect important hospital data. And the same thing is Mm -hmm. with financial, same thing with 
um, pretty much every industry has their own set of security controls. Um, we're in D.C. We work with the government a lot. The government has mm-hmm. their own set of security controls. Um, are they just coming up with these for like, you know, just like out of thin air? They're just like, ah, these this is what we need. Or are they basing it off of anything? Most of the government security controls come from the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST. Um, and so there's all these documents and documentations that have been crafted by different industry experts and, and government experts to come together and figure out what security controls the government would need, for instance. And so these are mm. very much along the lines of the examples I just gave you. Things like, you know, uh, having access control, security controls, or having physical security, having um, content protection, all kinds of things. Um, there's like a set of controls. And so there's like this mm. long list of controls that people who assess risk, risk assessors, can look at those security controls and determine if your organization is meeting those security controls or not. So NIST is the big daddy of which all of these other controls are sort of like the children. They're all derived from big daddy NIST, these huge, (laughs) giant documents that are really great reading if you're having uh, trouble sleeping at night. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Just just Google uh, uh, 837, NIST 837, mm -hmm. and just, you know, enjoy yourself. Yeah, get that on audiobook. Right. Uh, so, but of course, that's just government. Th- that's just government. That's true. So, you know, we're talking a lot about risk now. Let's talk specifically about third-party risk. So we're going to turn now to our guest, Ishan, and he's going to have quite a lot to tell us. So everybody wants to have risk management done, but it's a lot of work. You know, I got to manage my risk and not only manage it, I got to have it assessed first. That's twice the cost. What What am I going to do about that? That's a lot of money. Is, is it even worthwhile? Well, I think risk management and understanding risk, it's it's one of those it's one of those those jobs that just don't get the respect and the recognition that they do um, unless things go bad. Right. So uh, when I was in college, I worked uh, with lighting designers. I worked with people who did stage lighting for theater and a good lighting designers, good people who knew how to lit a stage. Um, your work goes unnoticed. Right. If, mm-hmm. if the audience pays attention to the actors on stage and not the lighting, it means you're doing a great job. In the same mm-hmm. way, if you're doing really good risk management and you're giving all your decision makers all the data and all the information and all of the assurances that they need to know that their their butt is covered, to put it in a in, in one way, um, it you're not going to get noticed. It's only when things go really bad where people go, okay, what happened? Why did that happen? Um, mm-hmm. And let's understand ways we can make it better. And so th- this is where those controls come in, right? So let's say that there's a... Um, Let's say that there's a DDoS attack, right? And as as Sean mentions, uh, a, a DDoS attack. Um, how are we supposed to respond to that? You know, we were caught with our pants down before. How can we make it better this time? We'll implement a new control. We will uh, manage that risk so it doesn't impact our business in a profound way. It's almost like you don't want to be in the news as as a, like a company who's doing risk management. It sounds like, oh no, I'm in the news for risk management. I did something wrong. Yeah, I think I think you hit the nail right in the head. Good risk management isn't seen. So thank you for joining us. We're here with Ishan Gerdhar, uh, and we're going to be discussing third-party vendor security. Uh, so in particular, we'd like to know, what is third-party risk in the context of cybersecurity? You know, third-party risk is really uh, tracking data uh, throughout your environment. So, you know, you know, when you think about an overall cybersecurity strategy, you know, you want to protect the data within your own four walls. Mm-hmm. But then there's a lot of companies that help make your business more efficient. Uh, so understanding who are those third-party vendors, 
where is your data going? And then making sure that they have the right cybersecurity and privacy controls uh, that's going to protect your data. Um, and, and I actually kind of was thinking about how to correlate it to like and sort of break it down into lamest terms is, you know, right now, if your fridge broke mm-hmm. during the COVID-19 and you have a repairman coming to fix it, you're not going to let that person in without a mask. So, mm. you know, you're actually you're ultimately like you're responsible for your client's data. So you need to know where it is and then how it's being protected as it's kind of going down uh, different channels. So in the, in the comparison, you're saying the third party risk is sort of like the mask itself that's on the person who's coming into your home. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. You you want to know that they're protected. They have the right controls to make sure that you're not going to get sick. I see. So, you know, uh, how often does one take on third party risk? Uh, does it vary as like an individual, as a business or as the government? Yeah. Um, you know, it really depends on what type of data the that third party is going to have access to. So we kind of categorize vendors and suppliers into three different buckets. So tier one, ones that are mission critical to your business, uh, those are generally going to get assessed somewhere between six to 12 months. We generally see an annual assessment. Tier two vendors, which are going to be a little bit less critical, not necessarily going to have access to PII. Those are going to be about 18 months. And then tier three, where you can think about uh, vendors that may be sort of walk around your office, security guards, et cetera. Uh, those you may do every 24 months. Um, I think that's pretty consistent across corporates as well as in the government space. Um, you know, looking at CMMC as an example uh, that the Department of Defense is trying to, to roll out here soon. It looks like they're doing three-year cycles in terms of that audit process, uh, but then also bringing in continuous monitoring tools that look at things on a daily basis from a public view perspective. But when you think about uh, under the hood, deep dive, security controls, implementation, you really want to think about that some anywhere from 12 to, to 24 months sort of cycles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So why is knowing uh, risk, right, specifically risk? I, I kind of want to pull apart what risk really means. Yeah. Um, I think most people, when they think risk, they think risky or, or like a risky behavior or like a, taking a chance at the roulette table, right? <laughs> In, in the cybersecurity context, um, why is it important for an organization to know risk? Uh, there's a couple different components. That's a great question. And we've all taken on our own risk at the roulette table, and that's not fun. So <laughs> um, there's, there's brand and reputational factors um, that go into this. You, are, uh, you're, you have a lot of customers that come and are trusting your business to maintain their privacy and their secrets, right? At the end of the day, it's secrets. It's it's the contract value, what they're offering, you know, IP-related information. If you're giving that to somebody else and then they're giving that to somebody else, you know, at some point, if there's a weak link in your chain, you know, everybody has an impact. And, and I, a lot of and a kind of another example, kind of bringing it back to like where we are in today's environment, you know, Google and Apple are building apps to track COVID-19, right? So if I have it, if I have the virus and then I go interact with a lot of people, you know, they're looking at cell phone data to say, okay, well, who else did Ishan interact with? So at the end of the day, you think about this, it's nth, nth party. At the end of the day, it's really kind of going from one to another to another. And so we always have to think about where that's going to where that weakest link is, and then the risk is, if it gets exposed, there's monetary risk, 
who's responsible for paying for it. There's brand risk. Mm-hmm. Should I ever trust that vendor or that that company ever again? Um, and their reputation is really like, what are they doing? How do they how do they fix it? How do they react to it? And and I think those are the main components that I think of of what defines a risk. What about a uh, legal risk in that situation? Is that also something that's factored in? It is factored in, and and um, you know, to be honest with you, it's one of the one of the components of third party risk that we see as one of the biggest challenges uh, is legacy contracts. So if you have a contract that's probably three years old with a supplier, there's pro- there's most likely not data and security uh, clauses, requirements, mm-hmm. and accountability in those. So if there is a breach, if there's no clause that you needed to protect it and you have the right levels of insurance to make sure that you're able to monetarily defend us, indemnify us, uh, then that's a problem. So... The general counsel's office is really important in the third-party risk analysis, and actually, it's actually the buyer um, with some of our clients that it actually starts in the legal department. Um, and so, making sure, and, and and kind of going back to your question is, if you've identified certain security controls that are um, not meeting best practices. Mm-hmm. And you say this is a remediation that you need to put in place, making sure that there are clauses in your contracts in the terms TNCs, terms and conditions that say if you're not, if you haven't remediated this finding by a certain date, are there clauses that allow for some sort of monetary relief on that contract? One. Uh, Two, is that a material breach of a contract? Is there, um, just continuing off of this, is there a like sort of generality for usually where like legal responsibility ends up uh, falling? Does it tend to fall more to the buyer itself? I mean, obviously it depends on the wording of the contract, but is there like any precedent set in the area for it? It, it generally, it generally sort of lies with the buyer. Uh, I think, you know, that it really does depend on every situation It's fairly unique, but, and you are putting in clauses that the buck stops with the supplier. Um, Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, uh, if I gave my, you know, kind of giving the context of a law firm, if I'm the client and I give my information to the, my, law, my lawyer, they're giving it to their vendor, that vendor has a breach. I, as the end customer, all I care about is going after the law firm in that example, right? Mm-hmm. So then it just sort of turns into a, a vicious cycle of just, you know, chasing your tail like a dog. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in sort of making these evaluations of like legal, financial, you know, reputational risk. Uh, what is, do you need to establish some sort of baseline of risk? So what is acceptable already so that, you know, you can actually say, oh, this was, you, you've materially damaged us in this way by failing to uh, control for the security. Yeah. I mean, one of the best practices that we see with very mature companies that have implemented third-party risk programs is having uh, minimum threshold, minimum requirements, and then having proper measures for exceptions, because there's always going to be an exception to every rule, right? No company's perfect. I can tell you that very clear. Uh, no company's always going to meet every. You know, every company has their own minimum thresholds, and 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 as a as a vendor, you need to prioritize where you're going to spend your resources and buy certain products. And so you're going to have to have a, an effective. Um, exception protocol process as, as, the, as the buyer of that product um, and then passing the buck off to the business. And, and, mm-hmm. and I, I usually give this example. I said, you know, 
procurement historically always was around business efficiency and price. Now security mm -hmm. and privacy is a third leg to that stool. And mm -hmm. InfoSec, risk management, have a seat, not only at the buying table, but at the board table. Um, and so it is important to, to have a, a good process in place that's going to say, okay, what happens if this vendor has an incident? How is it going to trigger our incident response plan? How are we going to have to notify our clients? Who's going to cover the cost until it goes through that litigation process and the insurance uh, carrier or the company is able to actually indemnify us. Cause if I had a breach today and you're my customer, I'm not just writing you a check tomorrow, right? I have to go back and I have to go through the litigation process, figure out what happened. Insurance carriers, businesses built off of not paying settlements. So mm -hmm. that process takes time. So making sure that there are right measures in place, um, at the onset. And it's about building a partnership with your vendors and your suppliers uh, not just treating them like a company that's helping you. Mm. Mm. So going back to uh, what you were mentioning earlier about minimum security requirements, um, what would a minimum security requirement look like? And of course, there are different clients and customers, different industries. What would be an example of like a minimum security requirement? Yeah, I'll give, I'll give two examples that I think are really relevant. Um, one is making sure you've done an annual third-party penetration test. Um, so that's a okay. very regular one. You know, at the end of the day, policies, procedures are great, but if I can hack into your system, that's a problem. So making sure you have mm -hmm. an independent third-party company testing your security controls on your on your servers. Uh, second is, uh, do you have an effective and comprehensive information security policy that has truly been communicated and acknowledged by every single employee? at the time of hire, and then is it available on a regular basis as changes happen? So people are the biggest security risk. We know that, right? A human error happens, and that's going to be our biggest issue. So are you educating them on a regular basis through policies and training? Um, and so those are, if you don't have a security policy, if you don't have an information security policy, you're not going to have anything, to be honest with you. Like that, that's sort of baseline number one. Uh, but then as you get more mature, like an example is like a, a third party penetration test, you know, doing, are you doing vulnerability scans and things like that? So Dayton, you know, you work a lot more in the risk management field than I do. Uh, you know, I, right. I'd be interested to hear more of your perspective on the matter. Well, I think, um, I guess a little bit of background about, about me, Ishan, is that I work for a startup that, um, called GovReady, and what we do is we have a um, an online tool that's similar to TurboTax that guides teams through risk management practices. Mm -hmm. So this is things like filling out a system security plan, filling out an incident response plan, et cetera. Um, so this is more of like an organizational rather than like a, a third-party organization coming in to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things that I've seen from interacting with teams and in different environments is that risk management, at least... Um, with the teams that I've interacted with, seems like um, a chore. It seems like something that's like difficult to do, something that like it's a due diligence thing that a lot of people don't have patience for. Um, and so one of the things that I've always heard that risk management professionals talk about is you have to get yourself in a risk management mindset. And so I was curious to hear, what do you think of as a risk management mindset um, what does it mean to care about risk management? And for naysayers or people who just couldn't bother with it, um, how could you caution those to care about risk management? 
No, that's, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think historically, and frankly, let me take that back. It's not even historically, it's present day. Um, <laughs> risk management is still a check the box exercise. Uh, it is a task that is a thorn in people's side, uh, in our world, getting somebody to fill out a questionnaire and kind of going through the security assessment questionnaire process is 80% administrative, 20% technical. That 80% 80 is sending out the questionnaire, following up with the vendor, making sure you got the right name of the person at the vendor, because generally you have the Mm -hmm. name of account manager who's many, many, many moons away from the security team. Um, And then trying to convince them that their data is protected and now you're, they're giving you the keys to their system, right? So mm-hmm. that process is, is really manual. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of tools that help you. There's, you know, companies like us, Priva, that help make that process a lot easier. We bring resources to help you. Then you look at somebody mm-hmm. like Risk Recon that's looking at publicly available data, that's scanning uh, systems and quantifying risks from a different perspective. Uh, mm-hmm. There's companies com- like SpyCloud. They're searching and mm-hmm. monitoring the dark web, looking for exposed email credentials and password credentials, and then correlating those to C-suite. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of different elements that you can use to bring it and streamline the process. But having said that, it still uh, has a negative stigma of mm-hmm. this is just a painful task and why am I doing it? I, I, mm-hmm. I can, no matter what, I can't. I can do an, a risk assessment of Amazon. Let's say I found a flaw. You think they're going to change their pro- policies because you know I, I saw a, a gap in their security, right? So that's the kind of process, right? So there's kind of this too big to assess, which is like the Microsoft, the Amazons, you know, that you're just really right. sort of like if they get breached, the world's going to fall apart, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if we think about that next layer, that's where we really have to think about it. And so the mindset is. Like I said earlier, I think the number one component of risk management is building a relationship with your vendors, mm. mm-hmm. right? Don't treat them like an enemy. If they have you know good controls, they, you know they're willing to work with you. And I think that's the number one frame uh, to get through risk management. And if you're willing to move a little bit to their side, they're going to be willing to move a little bit to your side. Uh, you're going to have a good relationship and then you're going to be able to then quantify where your gaps are. And at the end of the day, you have to make a business decision and it has to be a transparent environment within your organization that lets everybody know that, Hey, they don't have a third party penetration test. This is the data that we're putting on their system. If they get hacked because of that, this is the impact to our business. And uh, it's not complicated. It's not rocket mm-hmm. science. It's just effective communication um, mm-hmm. and then quantification. Right, right. Um, so I think one of the, I think a component of risk that isn't talked about enough is the idea that data and information is important to calculate risk, but at the same time, that risk data needs to be able to be legible and understandable for the people who need to make risk-based decisions. It needs to be a meaningful metric, yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So I guess my my next question would be, um, 
who makes risk decisions and what would be the impacts in organizations for these risk-based decisions on some of the data and information that that a third party risk managing organization would collect and find um i mean I, generally it's going i think the question is it, it's generally going to the buck stops with infosec um mm-hmm. your security teams uh will have the best perspective uh, and how to quantify that risk and I, I i use a statement i say risk is objective uh mm. chief information security officers and people in cybersecurity in general are all very very smart and talented people uh, but every single one of them has a different perspective of what is the most critical component of defining a risk um, and i'll give an example uh, i actually had three hedge funds use the exact same questionnaire sent it to the exact same vendor, and all three had very different risk scores associated with that vendor. Because some mm. some quantified and said, I'm putting the greatest emphasis on whether they had a third-party penetration test and the results of that penetration test. Another one said, I have the greatest emphasis on what do their policies and programs look like? A third had a component around, you know, they were doing uh, background checks every single year as opposed to on the day of hire only. So it was actually a really fascinating exercise for us to kind of see that. I actually had another client that actually did something really bizarre, to be honest with you, in my opinion. Um, and I loved it, to be honest, to be honest with you. Um, they asked the suppliers 100 questions to get the data. They got the artifacts for all 100 of those. 90 of the questions, they weighted zero. So it didn't actually factor into their risk score. And they only assigned uh, weight to 10 questions to calculate a risk score. They needed the data for all 100 questions from a regulatory and a compliance perspective. And obviously there was some something, something in that 90 could have flagged a, a sort of stop. But when they thought about how do we, how do we compare risk scores across our entire vendor ecosystem it was actually only based off of 10 questions. Um, and I thought that was a very, very interesting case study that, uh, that I may or may or may not have used with, uh, with other vendors. That's, mm. that's pretty interesting, actually. I mean, I've done sort of assessments in a similar vein where it's sort of a little bit more of an art than a science there. Do you think that there's an issue with a, you know, lack of standardization for calculating risk? Or do you think there's going to be a movement towards that ever? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, shameless plug. There's about to be an article coming out in the next week about me talking about that there's a fine line between standardization and customization in the security assessment and sort of risk management space. Um, yeah, right, right. You know, so look for that article on our blog here. But um, we'll be sure to link to that in the description. Yeah. The, the, yeah. the, the, the market actually uh, was very standardized, you know, a, a little over a decade ago. Uh, shared assessments an owner organization that we we work with and, and we're really excited about our partnership uh, the banks got together created a standard questionnaire knowing that they all use similar vendors um, it's actually become a little less centralized because now every trade association every industry association um, you know all now has created a standard so now there's like 500 standards. Um, yeah. And it's, <laughs> so it's kind of like, it's kind of like even in like the healthcare space, there's, there's, you know, there's a dozen different standard questionnaires. Um, 
But the problem is today, I would probably estimate about 70 to 80% of question, uh, companies that have third-party management mm-hmm. programs all use a custom questionnaire today. And right. that's what's causing the biggest problem in our industry. Um, but it kind of goes back to that part I said earlier is that risk is subjective. Each one of those organizations has their own view of what, you know, and how they want to manage that data flow and, and controls. Um, but you're seeing the num- the volume of number of assessments is going up between two and 300% for a vendor each year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then you see 80% of these questionnaires are customizable. Now that means that vendor has to add two FTEs just to answer questionnaires, increase the cost structure, and that cost is generally getting pushed back to the client. So it's like this weird circle. It's like you want us yeah. to you want us to tell you how we're protecting your data, but that's gonna ultimately cost you more because I now have to respond to you individually. And if I have a thousand clients and every eight eight hundred of them have their own questionnaire, what do you want me to do? And it's, and that's, balance. Yeah. it's never ending, right? And so it, it's a it's a battle that we, as well as you know, others in our industry, are fighting every single day. So, do you think that 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 tension is going to give? Do you think there's a point where that is going to break? Um, because, like, I think a lot of this comes down to like scaling, like scaling the risk assessments, scaling the understanding risk for different organizations, and that scaling is difficult if everyone wants to be separate and special. But at the same time everyone's risk is separate and special dependent on the organization, right? Where do you see like the future of risk management moving? Because um, the the situation you just described doesn't seem sustainable, right? Because now there's more IT systems and components that are in different organizations than ever. Um, what, what, you know, where is risk management changing in that direction and where do you see it changing? It's changing in the sense that uh, more and more companies are willing to accept any framework that a company has completed or built their cybersecurity program around. Um, So the clients need to be, in this example, versed in the shared assessment SIG, in the CIS, the the Cloud Security Alliance CAKE, the NIST 800-171. The client should be more adaptable to accepting a framework if it's a common framework that we've already been test, you know, tried and tested because these are all developed by security professionals and experts. Uh, be willing to accept that standard framework versus trying to make them create a, or answer a, a custom questionnaire um, or have those standard frameworks map back to your custom questionnaire that at least bridges the gap a little bit. Um, that's sort of one. And we, we, we do that with a lot of our clients, you know, the shared assessment SIG is something that we really like encourage our clients to use. If they have a standard questionnaire, the first thing we do actually is map their questionnaire to the SIG and actually prove to them that there's about 70 or 80% overlap. At the end of the day, our goal is to standardize terminology, not necessarily standardize the questionnaire. Uh, we actually looked at uh, a quantum of about 7,000 security assessment questions, and I found 10 different variations in that sample data that asked 
do you have a third party penetration test? And it was as simple as, do you have a third party penetration test? Do you have a company that does a, a, the third party evaluation of your network? Right. And there was just like slight differences, but every terminology change makes the vendor have to then read a question and make sure they're answering it specific. The second, second part of that is, um, know the value that you're paying to a vendor. And that should be a dictator of sort of what you should expect them to provide you. Meaning if I use a vendor and I pay them $5,000 a year and I give them a 500 question stand, uh, custom questionnaire, that's pointless, right? If you're, if you know you're a smaller client, then be willing to accept a standard. And so what we're actually saying to, to some of the vendors is, you know, set benchmarks. So at a law firm, as an example, if it's a client that's doing under $50,000 and you're just doing standard work, hey, like, let's build out a standard information packet that's like the shared assessment SIG and, you know, you just provide that in a secure environment. But if it is a client that's doing millions and millions of dollars, you're going to be more adaptable um, and flexible. Um, so know your worth to the vendor. Um and, and that's, that's the, like I say, it kind of goes back. At the end of the day, I believe that successful third-party risk management starts at the relationship. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how much cybersecurity ends up being less the technical powers and ultimately more of an issue of communication and yeah. you know proper word, wording. Um, I have one particular last question that I'd like to ask you that's been fairly relevant in the news, and that's sort of you know, what role does supply chain play in assessing risk? You know, we've heard a lot about supply chain security, especially with regards to China. Is this a rising issue, especially since, you know, is this considered part of third-party risk? How, how does supply chain fit into your risk assessments? I guess. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely does. Um, where your data is hosted, how it's being hosted, where, you know, who has access to it, uh, that is absolutely critical. Um, a key question of any security assessment um, uh, is, is around data storage hosting um and and where where that lies um we actually just built a you know we see a lot of companies trying to just simply hide behind my data is hosted on aws um Mm -hmm. we actually just built out a specific questionnaire for vendors that are hosted on aws azure and use g suite so we have three new questionnaires that we just built that actually then looks and says there's about 65 questions, 40 are, have you checked this box off when you're AWS environment? That's a best practice. And then there's about 25, which are add-on tools that help me understand what security measures you have in place. So like a guard mm-hmm. duty, as an example, AWS guard duty, um, is there somebody, is there a tool that's scanning my environment looking for a random ping at 2 a.m. from my CTO that's probably not happening, right? So, and alerting us. So, um, yeah, so where the data, I mean, you, you look at the Zoom example that just came out, you know, all of a sudden security became a hot topic for them. And, and then all of a sudden we found out that, you know, some of the data was actually getting routed to a server in China. Um, that's major major, major issues, especially with, you know, uh, not just corporations, but, you know, the government had a big push on that. And then they basically said no government entity can use Zoom um, Mm. during this time period, you know, and it's funny, they reacted so quickly, right? You saw all these features, 
you know, they went from 10 million monthly users to 200 million monthly users in a matter of a week. Nobody cared about security when it was 10. All of a sudden, it became a hot topic. But I give yeah. them credit. They reacted super quickly, right? A lot of those features were built. They were just default off versus default mm -hmm. on. Um, but you give them a lot of credit, right? They, they, did, they did step up to the plate um, and, and improve their security posture. Um, but you're seeing every company really think about that more and more. Uh, where is the data is hosted? Where is it backed up? Um, you know, have I have I shut off um, any any potential issues around data access in, in from a public perspective or from a from a foreign entity perspective? Well, excellent. I think this has been a particularly informing conversation on risk. Uh, we really appreciate you joining with us, uh, Ishan. No, I appreciate it. Thanks, guys. So third party risk, it's kind of just part of the risk management process for some people. We need to be increasingly aware of our security at the start of the supply chain to the end of it. In an era where applications may have many interdependencies, it's important for security for these dependencies to be transparent to the consumer so that they're actually properly addressed. And the consumer might be you, it might be the firm you work for, it might be the security firm that is employing, the security firm that developed that software that is being used by the firm you work for that's protecting you, all those people, and then there's still an extra layer after that. Right. It, it, is an all-consuming process, and it's incredibly important to be able to fight security, uh, to, to be able to fight against security vulnerabilities and to fight against vulnerabilities. You need to understand what you're fighting against. You need to understand what's at stake. Um, and risk management helps organizations understand what's at stake. Thank you for tuning in to Decrypted. As always, we seek to continue to educate the general public about cybersecurity issues. The only thing that we ask is, of course, that you tweet about us online, suggest us to your friends. Maybe you don't have particularly techni technically literate friends. This could be their chance to learn a little bit about cybersecurity and technology in general and its impact on society. We appreciate you turning in, and we look forward to you in the next episode. Decrypted is made possible by the Cybersecurity and Privacy Research Institute which is a center for GW and the Washington area to promote technical research and policy analysis of issues that have a significant computer security and information assurance component. To learn more, look up CSPRI or go to cspri.seas.gwu.edu.